Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're recording today's show on a windy Martin Luther King Day in the Pacific Northwest. Now, this show is not going to air for another 10 days or so, but we hope that wherever you are, you're still able to reflect on the importance of peace and the role of justice in our lives today. We certainly don't need those reflections to be confined to just one day in January. On today's show of This episode of Getting In, we'll be spending the majority of our time answering your listener questions. But before we get to that double dose of Q&A, I want to continue our summer activity series by diving right into a new category of engagement, the internship. Joining me from all the way on the other side of the country is my colleague, Sai Samboon, formerly of the University of Pennsylvania Admission Office. Welcome to the show, Sai. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Ian, for having me today. Very glad to have you here. And, you know, in previous episodes on the show, we've talked quite a bit about internships or we've made some allusions to internships, but I don't know that we've necessarily had a full segment where we've really jumped right into the concept of an internship, especially as it pertains to the summer. And so I was hoping that you could just sort of start by giving our listeners a sense of what we mean when we're talking about uh, a summer internship. How would we define that sort of activity? Absolutely. There are many ways to define a summer internship. For some students, it can be a very formalized structure, perhaps with a company uh, or a corporation. And for others, it could be a lot more informal. It could be something where you are working side by side along a business person or perhaps a medical professional. Um, It could be that you are learning about a new field that perhaps interests you. It may be that you are interning with um, a small boutique startup or a company that you have interests, you know, in pursuing either in college as a course of study or later on as a career path. Um, I think that internships have broadened in the past few years to include Mm -hmm. way more than just the formulaic, you know, applying to a corporate company and doing a summer program with them. So it's actually really exciting to see how changes have impacted these internships for lots of different types of students. Yeah, so so with something with with a really broad definition like that, when a student comes to you and says, you know, I'm really, I'm interested in doing a summer internship, is that even helpful as a counselor? I mean, does that give you any sense of what that student is looking for? Or is that just sort of a a category? Is it sort of like somebody coming Mm -hmm. to you and saying, I'm looking to have dinner tonight? Uh, you know, it doesn't tell you exactly what, what they like to eat and, and, you know, what the parameters are. So how, how do you help a student begin to think about this concept of, I want to do an internship? Sure. That's an awesome question because we get that all the time. You know, students will say, well, I think I should do an internship. Well, that to me doesn't say anything. You know, right. what would be helpful would be, what do you want to do? Do you want to learn more about a certain field? Do you want to shadow someone? Um, do you want to focus specifically on something, you know, whether that's health and wellness or learning more about finance or about uh, scientific research? 
for example. So I think that if students start with an actual idea of what they want versus on this overarching umbrella of internship, that can give counselors more of an ink, you know, and give them more of a sense of, okay, so you want to do something with sports. Well, you know, maybe you can intern with... So that's, that's really interesting. And I think that you know, there are a lot of different ways that we can think about this concept of an internship, but when a student tells us that they're interested in doing an internship, it's hard to have a clear sense of what that even means. It, it would be, mm-hmm. you know, be sort of like somebody coming to you and saying, uh, I'm hungry, I want to eat, but not really giving you a specific sense of what it is that they're looking for, or how they're going to fulfill that hunger. So how do you help a student that, that comes to you and says, Sai, I want to do an internship this summer? What does that mean to you? It's a really good question because that doesn't share anything about the student at all, right? Like, do I want to do an internship? Do I want to work for the summer? Do I want to travel? Well, where? What? How? Why? Um, All the typical questions that you would ask. So I would encourage students to start with what is it that they're interested in doing? Is it doing some scientific research? Is it working alongside uh, a medical professional or um, someone in finance? or perhaps it's someone in health and wellness. You know, maybe it's interning with a small startup, or maybe even finding an opportunity with a big corporation um, that have lots of different summer internships for students. So I would start with the interest first, as opposed to looking at this internship as a final destination and focusing more on what the interests are and then exploring the opportunities therein. So there are some things out there as far as internships are concerned. I, I love this sort of strategy. It's like at least let's figure mm-hmm. out the category of thing that you're interested in. Let's let's right. let's start by narrowing this down a little bit. Um, but you know, once we're there, there are a lot of options. You can think about internships that are established uh, that are attached to universities, the summer research mm-hmm. internship, uh, internships that are attached to big companies, which I think you alluded to as well, or just an internship mm-hmm. that is sort of of your own design. And when, when mm-hmm. you're a student, how do you think about the relative value of those things to you personally? Let's put aside the question of college admission. And we'll mm-hmm. come back to that. But just to you personally, how do you evaluate those different sort of structures as they pertain to these opportunities? Mm-hmm. Again, it's going to depend on a lot of different things, right? If you're interested in an undergraduate business program, perhaps you may think that uh, interning on Wall Street or for a financial firm or a bank would do you the best amount of value, right? But that's not necessarily true. You could be interested in business school, but perhaps interning with the theater company and learning the ins and outs of the administrative side um, will give you even more transformative skills and transferable skills, right? So it really is about what will be the best fit for a student. Some students are very clear. Hey, I want to do a tech internship with Google. There's this opportunity. I want Google on my resume. Boom. And that's totally fine as well, you know? But it also depends on what you really feel like you're going to learn most from. Um, You could join a class of 40 interns, you know, at a big corporation, or you could do your own thing, you know, search out someone that you are interested in working with for the summer. Maybe you become a personal assistant and you learn the ins and outs of managing a fitness studio. Perhaps that will actually give you more value than being one of many. So ultimately, it comes down to the student and 
their interests and how we could help them, uh, you know, make the best use of their time in the summers. Yeah, that you sort of started when you, with that question, you sort of started with the target, right? So if you if you have a goal of a particular outcome, personally, mm-hmm. think about the internships that might be connected to that goal. And it almost felt like you were talking more about, you know, the content of the internship and the skills that are developed through that as opposed to the name that's attached to it, right? Um, right. You know, you might have a fancy sounding organization that you're a part of, but if you're not actually doing interesting things as a, as a part of that internship, it's hard to take that and use it later on as a part of a, a resume or an, uh, you know conversation and an interview. That's going to make mm-hmm. you a more compelling candidate later on down the road, uh, at least in a professional sense. Um, but, you know, I, I put a, yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead. Absolutely. We talk to students all the time about what are you doing? right? Tell us the right. what. What is it? What are the tangible, uh, tactile things that you are doing? Don't just tell us. Share them with us. Show us, right? And so absolutely, Ian, you could be uh, working for a big company name, you know, a flashy name, but what are you actually doing? Are you actually doing anything or is this just something to put on your resume? Versus are you uh, assisting someone, you know, in a really cool field that you are learning about and you're able to make an impact in that way and get true experiential learning. That's really one-on-one. You know, I think that's a much better value for your time. So, you know, I asked you for a second to put on hold that question of ad- admission, but, you know, mm-hmm. we're still a college admissions podcast and, you know, you worked at the mm-hmm. University of Pennsylvania, which is I would say it tends to be tends to attract a more ambitious student, maybe a student that has a little bit more of a pre-professional sort of bent than than other mm-hmm. universities might have. To what degree were you looking for internships uh, in your review process, and how did you evaluate the relative strength of different kinds of internship experiences in the admission process? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Penn being a very selective school and including the Wharton School of Business and one of, you know, the undergraduate business programs tended to bring students with a lot of internship experiences. Some of them, to me, looked like they were just, you know, I ticked a box, I did an internship at Bain Capital, I did an internship with, at the time, Lehman Brothers, and then that was it. But then there were others that I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is someone applying for engineering, but maybe they did an internship with uh, a non-government organization, you know, or they're interested in business, but they did an internship with a small microfinance firm um, that is internationally based. So these are things that I think bring out the best in, in the students in terms of what are you actually doing, right? Mm-hmm. So... In terms of assessing the value of internships, that comes through in the students' essays as well, right? A lot of students will talk about their experiences over the summer, and you can truly gauge if someone actually learned anything or um, experienced something different and unique and, and transformative, you know, versus just being a paper pusher, for example. Um, right. and, and, you know, that exists in, on, on both areas, of course. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I almost think about you have these opportunities, these really compelling internships that you might experience as a high school student between your junior and your senior year. 
And, you know, you come back to high school and you're excited to talk about it and you talk to your counselor about it and you talk to your teachers about it and you really show that it was something that was beneficial to you, that was worthwhile for you to be a part of. And that can actually be conveyed in letters of recommendation as well. So I think Mm -hmm. the strength of an internship often comes through not just in the line item on the resume, but in the way that it shapes your understanding of a particular discipline and the way it conveys your enthusiasm and excitement. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I just love the way that this this stuff can all be really well connected. Um, Now, I sometimes, I think this comes more often from parents, though I think students are interested in this question, which is the question of paid internships versus Mm. uh, volunteer internships or even internships that you pay for. Uh, Is there any difference from the perspective of a college admission officer when you're looking at those, uh, you know, sort of three types of opportunities? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it depends on how much you're getting out of these experiences. Sometimes paid internships are paid because they provide access to certain things, whether it's networks or, uh, you know, access to speakers that may come in from the company or the organization. If that's the case, then, you know, if you feel like that's a good fit for you, then go, then go for it. But I, I would not say that just because an internship is paid makes it of a higher value. That's not necessarily true at all. Um, I know plenty of students who have had unpaid internships, and they've learned so much, you know, from shadowing uh, business leaders or medical professionals or theater directors, and especially the arts, <laughs> where, frankly, there's really not much money at all. But that's all right. about networking, right? So um, I don't think there is a clear answer as to whether a paid internship is better than an unpaid one. I think it depends on what you are getting out of it, you know, but in you, terms of the access, the networking. Mm-hmm. So, you, but you don't need to sort of be out there saying, "Okay, I got to find myself a paid internship because there is a stronger reputation with that particular type of opportunity than something where I'm unpaid." It doesn't sort of right. indicate quality in terms of the program. No. Yeah, not at all. I don't think it is a a a uh, defining you know, quality, uh, whether it's paid or unpaid, because there are plenty of students out there that are doing unpaid internships, and they're learning so much. Um, So, you know, just like with what you're saying earlier, Ian, as long as you're able to experience something that's truly interesting, and it fuels your fire and passion, and that translates into your, um, you know, your, your essays and your recommendations, and, you know, who cares if it's paid or unpaid, right? That's right. That's right. So we've got about two minutes left, and, and what I'm really, what I'd like to sort of come down to is, is I'd love to hear your advice for a student that says, okay, I, I have an idea for an internship I want to do. I know what area I'd like to do it in. Um, I almost know sort of a handful of people I'd like to reach out to to see if they're, they're willing to take me on as a summer intern. Any advice that you would give for a student for how to approach that first step of contacting uh, someone, you know, if it's an internship that's not necessarily something they apply for that's established already, just how mm-hmm. they would go about making that initial connection. Absolutely. It's about self-presentation. Who are you? Why are you interested in this? What is it that you want to do? Um, what are you hoping to gain from this? And how can you help this person or this organization or this company? 
right? So actually, recently, I've encouraged one of my students to reach out to the local city hall. She has an interest in governance, um, and she's really interested in grassroots uh, sitters, right? So she created a resume talking about her student leadership experience and wrote form letters and sent them to different people in the community. And that was a great start. And because of that, you know, she got some replies and there were others that were not, you know, oh, thank you so much, but we're not interested. But then there were others, oh, okay, let's meet for coffee and then go from there. If you want to take the initiative, then you have to present yourself in a way that makes you um, interesting and, and valuable to the field in which you're looking at. Right? right. So right. that's the first thing is I would encourage you to do as a student is to perhaps come up with a resume. Say, okay, uh, I've done all these things. They support these interests that I have, and this is why I want to reach out to you. You know, I want to learn more um, about your field, and this is why. Uh, so that, I think, would be a good start if you're going to take the initiative and start your own thing versus applying to different internship programs. And who knows what can happen? Who knows what kind of networks? Um, you know, you can find yourself in because of you taking the opportunity to take the initiative and going on it, going at it on your own. Yeah, I love that. It's a great sort of resolution, I think, for students to establish here in the early part of the year and something that they can have as a, a goal for, for their summer. And, and now is really a great time if you want to start making those connections and looking for opportunities beginning in June, July, August. Uh, it's a good idea to start reaching out now. Um, thank you, Sai, so much for coming on the show today and, and talking us through internships. I really appreciate uh, your perspective. Thank you for having me. Always a treat. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days, Uh, Yeah, Folks, when we come back, we'll be starting a uh, double dose of question and answer. So don't go away. We'll be covering all sorts of topics from finance to admission. We'll see you when we come back. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, 
at last return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. We thought we'd take some time today to answer your questions questions you've sent in over the last few weeks. Now, as a reminder, you can email us anytime with your questions at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Anything related to college admission or finance is on the table, so please don't be shy. Ask away. Uh, We also have a terrific Facebook page and a really wonderful social media team, so if you'd rather not write out that whole email, you can just post a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash collegecoach and get the conversation started that way. Anyway, enough about these logistics. Let's get right to your questions. Uh, joining me today to start the volley of Q&A is my colleague, college finance expert, Tara Piantanita Kelly, a longtime friend of the show and frequent guest star. Welcome, Tara. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. It's always fun to be on here with you. Always, always a pleasure. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to meet some people, some of our listeners, through the, the questions. And so, I figure maybe I would start uh, with a question we have from from Alice, um, and then you can we can just go back and forth and get to as many as we can today. Perfect. All right, great. So Alice uh, says, my daughter's father and I are divorced, and he is unwilling to complete the CSS profile because he doesn't want to pay more than a certain amount toward the cost of her tuition. If I tell the colleges this, will they allow us to skip? completion of the non-custodial parent form. I think that's what that is. It says NCP. That's non-custodial parent form, right? Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. So, yeah, this, this question has many layers. So um, I'll, I'll start with, with the beginning. With, with divorce, sure. in a divorce situation, only the custodial parent's information goes on the FAFSA. So, and the custodial parent is the one defined as the one that the student spent more time with, lived with more during the previous 12 months prior to when they complete the FAFSA. So that's kind of an easy, um, an easy person to figure out usually. Uh, if the student is then going to apply to a school that also requires the additional financial aid form, the CSS profile, it's pretty common for the school to ask for both the custodial parent and the non-custodial parent to complete those forms. And mm-hmm. if the uh, if the non-custodial parent refuses to do it, um, worst case scenario is the student doesn't qualify for any need-based gift aid, meaning free money, from the school itself. The school can say, hey, this is the criteria in order for you to get any of our free money. Both your mom and your dad have to complete the profile form. If one of them won't do it, you don't get any of our money. Um, so that is usually what happens. Just because, And if the father is saying, 
well, the reason I don't want to complete this form is because then it's going to tell me how much I need to contribute. Actually, that's not really the case. Um, yeah. What, what, you know, the, the father can say, okay, well, it, it says that now I need to contribute, you know, 80 grand, but I'm only going to contribute 20 regardless of what this says. Um, so I would say, you know, go ahead. Go ahead and complete this, the non-custodial profile. It's not going to force you to pay more <laughs> than, than you want to pay. Um, but if you don't complete it, then the student, you know, may not get any need-based aid at all from the school because of you. Um, and then I, I will piggyback that and say it's possible that a school might waive that non-custodial profile form, um, but usually not just because the parent doesn't want to do it. Um, I worked with a family that was successful in getting the non-custodial profile form waived, but it was because uh, there was a, a case of um, abuse in the in the family, and mm. the school said, "Yep, mm. we don't want the student going <laughs> to have to get information from this person when there when there is documented abuse that that the family could um, could say." So they're like, "Yep, we don't need the the non custodial profile in this situation." So it's possible to be waived, but not just because the parent doesn't want to do it. Gotcha. Now, Tara, I wanted to ask a, a quick follow up. Um, in most cases, would you say that having the non custodial parent form increases the amount of aid a student might receive, decreases the amount of aid a student might receive? What sort of is the, the upshot there? I mean, could, you, could Alice go back to her uh, ex-husband and say, hey, this is actually going to help you have to pay less by turning this form in? Uh, that is a possibility. So, so let's say, you know, Alice is the custodial parent. She's willing, she is her information on the FAFSA. She's willing to do the profile form in her name. And let's say the, her, her ex-husband, um, does not have much income or assets. Uh, then that could actually kind of be beneficial to the student, you know, if, if he completes the form and, and they see, oh, okay, it's not that this guy just doesn't want to contribute to the cost of college. It's that he doesn't have the resources to do it. So yeah, that's, mm. that's absolutely the case. Now, you know, if, if he has a lot of income and a lot of assets, that could go the other way. Gotcha. Gotcha. But but I think fundamentally, it's not telling him this is how much you have to pay. So filling out the form right. doesn't put him on the hook for anything. I think that's, that's reasonable. That's exactly can, right. Great. Alice, you can take that to him and, and uh, hopefully that'll, that'll help him get going there. Um, yes. <laughs> great. On to the next one. All right. Who do we have here? Who's the next one do you see coming up, Ian? Is it, um, is it Terry's question? Uh, I see a question. Uh, do you have some admissions questions on hand for me? We can jump into another finance um, question if you'd like. Oh, God. Let yes. me, uh, uh, you know what? I, I haven't done this before, so I, I didn't know how this works. But I could, I'm sure I could pull up one of the um, admissions questions. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's go back and forth. And that way you okay, don't have great. to talk the whole time. Great. Okay. All right. Um, how about this one? John says, um, I've written a draft of my F essay that my school counselor likes. My parents read it a few days ago, and they don't think it is emotional enough. Uh, I gave it to my English teacher, and she wants me to add a whole bunch of new information. How do I decide what to do next? <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> wow, John, I hope this gets to you in time. Uh, but if it doesn't, uh, this will help all of the juniors right now who are thinking about essay writing coming up this summer and into the fall. Um, I think it's really important not to have too many cooks in the kitchen. When you've got three different people or three different groups of people helping to advise you on your essay, it's understandable that all those people are going to have different perspectives on what makes that essay really good. 
And this is something that we run into at College Coach sometimes. You know, we help advise students on their essay writing. But of course, a student's going to want to show that essay to an English teacher. It's going to want to show that essay to parents as well he should. But it's important to understand how you're going to incorporate all of that feedback together. What are you hoping to get from your English teacher in order to help improve that essay? What are you hoping that your parents can provide by being a set of eyes on that essay? And so what I think you might do is, first of all, just decide who's the person that you want the primary role in helping you on this process. If that's your college counselor, great. If it's your English teacher, great. If it's your parents, that might be a little challenging, but great. Still great. Go for it. Now, as you work closely with that particular person or with those people, you can bring other people in, but I would advise doing it in in a very specific kind of way. I would ask my English teacher, uh, do you think that this sounds like my voice, right? Because your English teacher has read a lot of your writing and so has a pretty good sense of what your voice is. Um, If you're going to give it to your parents, say, do you think that this captures the kind of person that you know me to be? Your parents are going to know you better than anybody else. So you might specifically ask your readers not to say, hey, what do you think of this essay? But, hey, what do you think of this very specific element of this essay, which I perceive as your area of expertise? And what that does is it avoids the problem of always having to go back and start from the beginning with new introduction of of information. And if you spent seven drafts with your college counselor getting the perfect story out on paper hammering through pluses and minuses, eliminating extra stuff, really beefing up the important stuff. And then you take it to your English teacher who says, um, you should add some more information. Well, that English teacher doesn't know what that process looks like. So you have to really use your additional editors in a very smart, thoughtful way. And you also have to be willing to finally say, all right, thanks for the advice and go ahead and do what's best for you at the end of the day. That's a that tough one. That makes sense. <laughs> one thing that, that you said that really stood out to me is it has to be in that student's voice. I mean, it, this has to encapsulate that student. So you don't want it to sound like your parents wrote it. You don't want it to sound like your English teacher wrote it. That's right. right. I mean, that's right. That's what they're trying to get from this is, is your voice that, you know, what, what is it that, what is the essence of you that comes out in this, in this essay? Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Your English teacher happens to love the word metamorphosis and suggest that you insert it in there. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't use that word. That's not going to be something I'm right. putting in my essay. What are you talking about? Excellent. So yeah, Love it. be careful. Don't, don't get all those cooks in the kitchen. Whoever's got, you know, there to help you with that main idea, go from there. All right, on to the next one. This one is from Terry, as you alluded to earlier, uh, Tara. Uh, Terry says, my daughter wants to attend a college that is rather out of our price range. Even with the financial aid, she was awarded. She wants me to co-sign on a private educational loan for her. What are my risks? Ah, there are many and varied risks associated with this. But I'm, I'm before I talk about that, I'm going to take a step back and be a little controversial and say, you know, you as a parent do have the authority. You have veto power. Mm. <laughs> if if the if your kid wants to go to a school that you think is out of your price range as a family, and and you don't want them, you know, inundated with student loans when they graduate, you know, you, it is possible for you to say, I think this is 
not financially prudent, maybe you need to look at a different school. Okay, that being said, if you have decided with your child that um, one of the things that you're going to do is you will uh, co-sign a private educational loan, and just so you know, private educational loans um, that are borrowed in the student's name always require a creditworthy co-signer. Usually it falls to mom and dad. And if you've decided as a family we are going to co-sign up to a certain amount, um, then uh, you know, go ahead and do it. What are the risks? Well, you're essentially putting someone else in charge of your credit. Um, I don't know about you. I'm very uncomfortable with that. So, uh, you know, we have a a couple of um, uh, things that that we we tend not to advise. We tend to just inform. But one thing that we sort of advise on is if you're going to co-sign for anybody on anything, including your child on a private educational loan, you might want to set up something called a buffer account. And this is account, an account, it could be just a regular checking account that both you and the student borrower, you're both on the account, you both have access to the account, and the student puts the money for the loan payment into that account, and then that account is automatically debited by the, the loan servicer so that it comes out of that account. And then you can, you'll have access to it. You can see, okay, I know the loan payment is supposed to come out on the 20th. I'm going to check on the 15th and make sure that there's enough money to, to come in there, you know, to, to make that payment. And if there's not, I'm going to get on the phone with the borrower and say, hey, you got to put some money in there because the loan payment's about to come out. That's a way to protect your credit. So um, the, the risks with a co-signing any kind of loan for anybody is you put your credit at risk. You also... Uh, it, your credit could take a hit because you're, you're seen as a co-borrower. That is going to affect your debt-to-income ratio as well. So just know, and I've seen this happen when I was a financial aid director too many times, you know, uh, the freshman comes in and they're, as part of their family financial planning to pay for college to do this private educational loan and mom and dad co-sign for, you know, 40 grand for the first year and it's approved and they apply for 40 grand the second year and it's approved and they apply for 40 grand the third year and it's denied because they just have an an $80,000 increase in their debt to income. So yeah. that can be, yeah. I mean, so, so I, I, I'm, I'm not saying don't borrow private educational loans. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying know what the pros and cons are before you do it. Know how much the student's payment is going to be before you borrow it, and that know what what uh, you're willing, how much you're willing to to co-sign for, and don't go above that. I think that's that's really great advice, um, and and probably something that. The student doesn't want to hear, but the parents are glad to have your backup on that. So I think Terry's going to appreciate that question. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's, it's, you know, we see a lot of parents doing this, and, and there's nothing wrong with it as long as everybody's on board and everybody you know, has the same understanding. Right, right. Um, all right. I, do you have a shorter one for me? We've got about two minutes before our next segment, but I think we can get one shorter one in. Okay, let's see. Um, do we want to do another F? Oh, how about... Um, how about that one on alumni interviews? You want to cover that? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Um, is the alumni interview important, and how is it used in the process? Great. That's, that is a, a pretty good question. Um, I think the question of whether the alumni interview is important, I think there are really two ways to answer that. Um, the alumni interview is important to the institution because it allows them to keep their alumni involved and engaged. So if I work in an admission office and I've got a huge uh, sort of cohort of alumni volunteers 
who want to meet with prospective students every year and do interviews, that's a great way for me to have them engaged in the process, to get them feeling good about their institution, and to spread the good word about the school. So it is uh, definitely a valuable thing to an admission office to have alumni interviewers. And from the standpoint of a student, the alumni interview is certainly plays a role in the process, but it's not a hugely significant part of that process. You know, I, I think we want the interview to matter, but I think you also want to think about it as should a 30-minute conversation outweigh four years of grades and the entire family of essays that you've written and the testimony of your teachers and your counselor and all this content that you put into your application? You know, it's a nice piece of the puzzle, but it's it's ultimately a very small piece of the puzzle. And so you want to make a good impression on your alumni interviewer, but it's really only going to make a difference in the admission decision around the margins if you're not quite in, but then that interview is awesome, or you're right on the borderline and the interview doesn't go so well. <clears throat> I would encourage students as you're thinking about alumni interviews, the alumni of a student uh, of a school are, are pretty diverse. So I would recommend that you know when your interviewer graduated. If that person graduated in 2015, that's going to be a very different conversation than if that person graduated in 1985. Right? So you can ask a variety of different questions to a younger interviewer than what you can ask from an older interviewer. You might ask the younger interviewer what the experience at school is like. You might ask the older interviewer, how has your education at this institution helped you in your career over the last 30 years? Um, you also just want to have a good sense that you know, interviewers are going to be very, very different depending on who they are. There's training that's provided by the admission office, but they're going to be a little bit different. So you know, be yourself. Uh, understand that the personality of the interviewer is not always reflective of the personality of the institution. Have fun, enjoy the conversation, um, and uh, I think it'll go it'll go well. Uh, we are going to take a break, but we've got even more questions to answer after the break. So when we come back, we'll jump right into another round of questions. Tara, you're still going to be here to help me out with that, right? Oh, you bet. Okay, good, because I don't want to ask myself questions. I think that would be somewhat <laughs> awkward. <laughs> All awkward. right, we'll be right back. <laughs> All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, 
What options are available to pay for college? And most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application? We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Even though we're taking your questions today, I wanted to carve out, well, I just banged my microphone. Sorry about that. Uh, I wanted to carve out a little time for our weekly school spotlight. Today, a focus on Harvey Mudd, that tiny college at the north end of the Claremont College Consortium. If you're a future engineer who enjoys studying philosophy or a prospective mathematician who appreciates literature, Harvey Mudd College may be the perfect fit for you. A member of the Claremont Colleges, Harvey Mudd is one of the nation's preeminent math, science, and engineering colleges. But unlike some other technical institutions, Harvey Mudd fully embraces the study of the liberal arts. All students must complete a writing course as well as five additional classes through the Department of Humanities, Social Sciences, and the Arts. So while a computer science major might be registered for complexity theory and artificial intelligence, she could also be learning about music of peoples of the world and third world women writers. The clinic program is one of the hallmarks of a Harvey Mudd education. Approximately 40 teams of juniors and seniors work collaboratively with a faculty advisor to solve a real-world technical problem for their host company. After working diligently for eight months on a design solution, the teams present their results on Projects Day each spring. In 2016, American Express, Microsoft, and Time Inc. were among the more than 40 participating corporate sponsors. Apparently, all this hands-on work pays off as the average starting salary for the class of 2017 was $87,000, uh, which is quite $87,000 a year, which is, which is quite significant. And I will add that three students from my high school graduating class went to Harvey Mudd. One did rocket science at Stanford and Cambridge. The other was a biomedical engineer who did his uh, graduate work at Cornell. And the third is a professor at the Rose Holman Institute of Technology. So um, Harvey Mudd. Always a fan. All right, Tara, let's get back into our Q&A that we've had that little Harvey Mudd interlude. Um, And I have a question for you from Karen. She says her daughter is 21. She works part time. Daughter. Uh, Can she file a FAFSA without her mother's information if her mother does not claim her? That's from Karen. Ah, I get this question all the time, so I'm all I'm happy to, to share with you. And the answer is probably not. In order for a student to not have to include their uh, parents' information on the FAFSA, they have to be answer a, a series of what we call dependency questions. And this is just for financial aid purposes. But when the student is completing the FAFSA, uh, she'll be asked this series of questions. And if she can answer yes to even one of those questions, then she doesn't have to list her her parents' information on the, the FAFSA. 
Um, but it doesn't ask about, you know, are you self-supporting? Does your mother claim you on your taxes? It doesn't ask that at all. The questions are these. Essentially, and it's for this coming, for the 2018-19 FAFSA, uh, it'll ask the student, were you born before January 1st, 1995? Um, are you married? Um, are you in a master's or doctorate program? Um, are you currently active duty in military? Are, or are you a veteran? Um, do you have children that you provide at least half of their support for? Um, or do you have other dependents that, that you provide at least half their support for? Um, you know, after any time after turning 13, were you an orphan or a ward of the court or were you in the foster care system? Um, before you turned 18, were you an emancipated minor? Um, so it's, it's a series of questions like that that determine whether the student uh, gets to be uh, independent for financial aid purposes or dependent, in which case mom's information will still have to go on. Gotcha. So those are sort of a lot of unusual cases, and they're not my student earns money on the side. It's it's really about right. specific kinds of situations. Cool. Good. Right. Good question. That's exactly right. Great. Thanks, Karen, for that question. All right, Tara, what have you got for me? All right. Um, how about this? We have um, Russell who uh, says he was just he received a deferment. He was just deferred. Um, and what does he do next? What is his, his next step now that he's received a deferment? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, and and it's really interesting in these schools these days. Um, you know, you've got the early decision one round that happens on November first, and students hear back in December. Some students apply for early decision two, which is in January, and and they might hear back as late as end of January, early February. So there are probably some early decision notifications that still have not yet come out, and it's likely that um, well, it's not just likely, but it is a certainty that some students will be deferred. Um, now, when you are deferred, it's important to note that this means you're still alive. Um, you haven't been denied yet. You still have an opportunity to be admitted to this school. It's not the best news that you can possibly have, but I think it's 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 better than nothing, and there's no reason for you to give up hope. Now, one thing that I noticed when I was working in college admission at Reed is how few students would reach out to us after a deferral to re-express their interest. And re-expressing your interest is a way of just showing the school, hey, I'm still here. I'm still thinking about you. I'm, you know, I'm disappointed I wasn't admitted, but I still would attend if I were offered a chance to attend. And to provide some updates as well on things that happened, especially if you applied to a school ED back on November 1st. You know, it's three months later. What's happened in that meantime? What grades do you have? Have you won any awards? Have you had any interesting achievements or experiences in the last three months that might be interesting to a college admission officer? The best thing for you to do is to put all of that into a letter and you can send that directly to the admission office. If you know the rep who reads your particular region, you can send it right to that rep, but it would be fine to send it to the admission office as well. And when I say letter, it doesn't have to be a handwritten letter with you know, a box of brownies attached. It can just be an email if you want it to just be an email. Um, and you're basically just letting the college know that you're still there, that you're still interested, and you look forward to an opportunity to consider that offer of admission. 
And we go into this in, in much more detail um, in the show from December 21st. So if you want to jump back into our archives, you can have a listen to Tova and Sally talk about how to approach the deferral process. And, and it tends to be sort of what I'm describing for the vast majority of schools. I, I would say especially those schools that are much, much smaller, your small liberal arts colleges, it really is important to make some kind of contact between that deferral and the regular decision round. So great, great question there, Russell. Excellent. Okay. Well, that that is super helpful because I had no idea about that. One. <laughs> new all right. Well, we, this is great. You you and I get to learn something as well as we go through this because I'm I'm learning all about these financial aid things as well. Uh, so our next question is from Adriana, who says, "I just completed my FAFSA, and my 2016 income was way higher than 2017. What should I do?" So there's a big difference. Ah. It looks like the prior year's income was higher than the the more recent year's income. Yep. This is a great question that I get quite often, too, because the, the FAFSA looks at a very specific year of data. So for the, the if you're doing the FAFSA right now for the 2018-19 school year, you, they're going to ask about your 2016 income. So if your 2017 income is much lower, you know, you're going to want to let the school know that, but you can't put that information on the FAFSA. The FAFSA only wants your 2016 information. So what you would have to do is it's a manual process. You would have to reach out to each school and say, and to the financial aid office, this is usually called something like a financial aid appeal or unusual circumstances or something along those lines. Reach out to them and say, hey, this is my situation. I put my 2016 information on the FAFSA just like I was supposed to, but my 2017 information is drastically lower. Will you take that into consideration? And almost every school that I know of will say, yes, that's that's pertinent and relevant for the most part, unless, let's say, like you just quit your job. You're like, nope, I just don't want to work anymore. <laughs> so if there's a if there's a reason like that, that, that uh, your income is lower, they may not take that into consideration. But if you had a lower income for, you know, a job loss that wasn't your fault or for whatever reason your income is lower, they will absolutely take a look at that. Some schools have their own form that they want you to complete. Other schools just want to see your end-of-the-year pay stubs for 2017 to prove that your income was lower. But, yep, yeah, it's a manual process. You'll have to reach out to each school's financial aid office and ask them that question. Gotcha. That makes that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and it's nice. I mean, it's nice that there's some flexibility in, in what these schools can do just to hear some of those, uh, you know, those different stories that people have uh, about their income and how it changes year over year. Yeah, absolutely. And it's completely relevant information. When someone would come to me and say that, I'd say, yeah, that makes total sense. It, you know, of course, I'll take a look and, and, uh, and we'll see what we can do. But yep, absolutely. Schools do it all the time. Perfect. That's great. So you ready for another admissions one? Yeah, hit me again. All right. All right. So Willow says, um, my friend said the best college admissions essays are sob stories <laughs> and that I should make the admission reader feel sorry for me. Is that true? <laughs> Whoa, where do I start? Um, you know, <laughs> let's say your friend comes to you and say, says the best movies are movies that make you cry. But you say, well, you know what? Actually, I I I really like comedies. Or I like action movies. I, I like I like a good mystery, right? You know, the preference of your friend doesn't necessarily impact the preference for you when it comes to choosing movies, or choosing restaurants, or choosing music. And admissions officers are different people as well. They don't all want to hear sob stories. Some of them want a dose of humor. Some of them want uh, something that shows your growth over time. All of them 
want an essay that shows who you are. And the thing that, you know, when I saw this question come through, you know, the thing that struck me immediately was most people don't have sob stories. Most students don't have incredible hardship that they're going to share in their college admission essay. And so trying to write a sob story for yourself, if your life has, you know, largely, you know, you've got some some setbacks here and there, but for the most part have been a typical high school student, you're not going to be in in a good position by trying to find the saddest thing that happened to you and reflect on that thing. Um, It's better for you to find the thing that is most closely connected to who you are, what you have to offer to a a particular college and how you can contribute to that community. So, you know, it's really important, I think, for students to avoid any sense of this is what college admissions officers want to read because there's no answer to that. We're all different people. Um, And then try and find the thing that you want to write, whatever that specific thing is that makes you at your best. That's the thing that's going to be the, the best college admission essay. Um, so Willow, uh, tell your friend, she's a little bit off base there, uh, but then invite her out to a movie and, and, and dinner and you can talk all about it. Um, <laughs> I love right. that. I love that. My, my daughter is, she's in grad school now, but when she was writing her college essay for her undergrad, um, she's kind of a quirky girl and she wrote it as if it were a dossier where she is wanted by the FBI. <laughs> and, and I was like, I was like, oh, I, I loved reading it. <laughs> and, I, and she got into the school of her choice, so apparently they loved reading it too. But it really showed who she was. Right, right. That is the key. And and this the, that's the kind of mom you want too, the mom that says, I love reading this. This is just like you. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> all right. We have got about one minute. So I'm going to see if you can answer this question in about one minute. And maybe we can do a plug for a future episode. Steve says, my daughter has heard back from a few of her schools who have admitted her and offered her scholarship money. She's got a couple schools she's waiting to hear from. Can I go back and ask for more? I can answer this in less than a minute. The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> always, Perfect. always go back and ask for more. There is no, there's no downside to asking for more. Um, the worst thing they can say is no. Uh, and then at least, you know, you didn't leave any money on the table. So yes, the answer is yes. Absolutely. Go back and ask for more. And I'm going to put in a plug for our show on February 1st, which will be about financial aid appeals and February 8th, which will be on scholarship negotiation. So both of those topics are going to get a much fuller exploration uh, later this um, next week and the week after. So please tune back in and we'll help you to better understand that process. Uh, Tara, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that's all we've got for today, but um, it's great to get a chance to interact a little more closely with our listeners and, and answer these questions for them. Excellent. Thank you for having me, Ian. Stay warm and I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, or the day after. Take care. Right. (laughs) So we all hope you have a terrific close to your week this week, wherever you may be. We'll be back, as I mentioned again, next Thursday with an all-new show hosted by Beth Heaton. We continue our summer series by discussing some options for the competitive athlete in the summer months. That's always a great time to get a leg up on the competition, and we'll talk you through it. Uh, It'll also be the very beginning of financial aid season, as I alluded to, and we'll start talking about financial aid appeals, something I think many senior parents We'll be interested in hearing about, not just Steve. Until then, have a terrific close to your first month of 2018, and we'll catch up with you on the 1st of February. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.